at Cornwall Avenue and Arbutus Street on July 20, a five-year-old was critically injured in a car crash. On July 20th, a Vancouver man was walking home with his three young children after playing tennis at Kitsilano Beach. As they waited to cross the street at Cornwall and Arbutus, two cars would collide at the intersection. One vehicle jumping the curb, pinning his five-year-old daughter to the light post. She had a massive wound on her leg, opened, flesh, fat, broken bones, everything. I could see it. And I grab her and I start screaming her name. Then I look at my two boys, if they are alive. And I check them, they were still standing. The daughter surviving her injuries, but faces a long recovery. His two sons unhurt, but like him, traumatized. Now, as the family begins to move forward, they are finding ICBC's no fault or enhanced care model difficult to process. Unhappy, because... They are unable to hire a lawyer to help with the complexity of the claim. But the family says communication has been delayed and the new model does not allow for victims like them to hire a lawyer to sue for things like pain, suffering and future earnings. Emadagahi, Global News. That was Emadagahi for Global News telling uh, the story of a five-year-old who's critically injured in a car crash on July 20th in Vancouver. Our guest is Seth Wielden. He's a lawyer at Presler Injury Lawyers. Hello, Seth. Good morning. Seth, first of all, how is that little girl doing now? I don't have direct contact with her, but, um, I, you know, she's in the recovery process. And it's really quite tragic. Because when you're at your worst, you really need an advocate to help you get the care that you need. And ultimately, under this current system, you're on your own. They have these complex regulations. You're in a time of trauma and recovery. And people are asked to review hundreds of pages of complex legal documents without someone helping them navigate the system. And essentially, ICBC has taken away your right to hire a lawyer to help you with that process. And I think it's really disappointing but unsurprising given the new legislation. So we have talked about the that legislation on the program before but for those of you who are new to it can you explain how ICBC's no fault policy works? So essentially from May of last year you no longer have the right to sue and they've taken away a lot of rights of accident victims. So one example is income loss. Historically, judges in the courts for a long time assessed income loss based on what you would have earned. But ICBC are now taking that right away. Now, you do do get some money for income loss, but let's just say you're on the cusp of being a Red Seal plumber or a dentist. You're maxed out at 50 grand a year, whereas their income clearly would be multiples of that amount. Um, And essentially, you know, since David Eby called ICBC a dumpster fire, Instead of changing what's going on there and their culture, which is adversarial by its nature, they've given more power to ICBC. So uh, it's really Orwellian that they want to call this enhanced care when they're stripping your rights away. I mean, to me, the obvious solution is to look at other options because, you know, they had a monopoly and they were unsuccessful in managing it. Instead of changing the culture there, they've just given them more power. It's counterintuitive. 
Yeah, and I hear, gosh, almost on a weekly basis from listeners who say they were uh, they fell victim to ICBC's no fault policy. That they were, you know, even today, somebody wrote me saying that they got uh, hit by a car when they were on their bike, and how no longer having that right to sue is is very challenging. And the no fault policy is especially controversial when uh, you mentioned you mentioned there the income loss that you can't claim it in the same way that you used to well we all know that the impacts just the even the psychological impact of getting in an accident or a crash is is massive what kind of toll does it take on people i you know i've i've represented people with all kinds of injuries and the devastating ones it's just you know I, people can live up, end up on the streets at times uh, because physically they're not well, financially they're insecure, and psychologically it can ruin someone when they've lost their career. So they need all the help they can get. And, you know, ICBC often says, well, if there's criminal charges, then you still have a right to pursue a claim. The problem with that is that uh, accident victims have no control over whether the RCMP or police lay charges. So you've lost that autonomy. A lot of penalties are just administrative, so they don't count as a criminal criminal conviction. And then, you know, if the defendant is drinking and driving and passes away, there can't be a conviction. And then uh, the, the person who's done this is now personally liable. So even in the rare situation you can advance this claim, they end up with an empty judgment because no one will pay for it. So it's just like in the article that you cite, uh, the representative for ICBC mentions this yet again, but it's just, it's an empty promise. Yeah. And then that article also, um, the father of the children and of the five-year-old child that was hit says that the kids don't feel safe at home within visual range of the accident location. And when they see that corner, they start to scream, thinking that a car might hit them. That's like a trauma response, I guess. Now, what do you think ICBC should do? What should the province be doing instead of this no-fault policy? Well, I mean, they could manage their resource effectively. That would be one thing. And frankly, they did. Before they brought in no fault, they made $1.5 billion, but they still stripped away your rights. So they could go back to the system where there's a cap on some damages. Um, They could also open it up to other insurers who know how to manage a resource like insurance for the province of British Columbia. There's no reason ICBC needs to be the only option in town. But what they should be doing in this specific case is allowing her to have representation because, you know, in my firm, we have someone solely dedicated to making sure someone gets the care they need when we're representing them. And in this case, he said she doesn't even have a psychologist. Well, I mean, there shouldn't be any question about care in this enhanced care world. But the reality is... Sorry, they, just to clarify there, Seth, the five-year-old doesn't have a psychologist? The, do- the, the, the father in that article yeah. said that they haven't even assigned a psychologist yet. Wow. Clearly, they're dealing with significant trauma. And they need to be seeing people. But, you know, I've had clients who come to me and ICBC hasn't answered their emails for weeks or months. So imagine you're in this state where you need to access care. It's called enhanced care and no one's responding to you and they're not facilitating the care that they've promised you. It's just 
it's really tragic. Seth, it seems like there's only public outcry about the ICBC no-fault policy when something like this happens. How do we get this in the public uh, forum more so people are discussing it? Well, um, there will be a lawsuit challenging it. And it, it's it's not easy litigation, but the trial lawyers are advancing this. And uh, a poor man who is a lawyer, uh, I believe he was a corporate lawyer on the island, uh, was tragically injured. And I believe, you know, he has lost uh, of use of his limbs. And he's challenging this no-fault regime. But, I mean, I just think, why can't we take a step back and just look at what's going on here? ICBC gives you 110 bucks and tells you everything's great. They haven't any announced their profits for the last year. I don't think they're giving you 110 bucks because they had a bad year. And the year before, again, they made 1.5 billion and then they took away your rights. So if they're, if they're profitable, why can't we consider actually taking care of people who get hurt and penalizing those people who caused those damages? I mean, we've done it for a long time, and ICBC essentially just didn't like the outcomes of what judges thought was fair, and so they took away your rights. It just it doesn't have to be this way. Seth, thanks so much for coming on our program and explaining that to us. You have a great day. BC liquor stores put a place put in place uh, rationing on Friday to curb people's panic buying in the event that the labor dispute advances and people don't have booze. Stephanie Smith is the president of the BCGU. She had this to say on the Jill Bennett show. Um, certainly we weren't given any heads up, but, um, you know, we wouldn't expect to be given that heads up. That's a, a decision of the employer, the LDB. Um, you know, unfortunately, uh, we only learned about it at 8.30 a.m. this morning, about half an hour before the stores opened. So, uh, no, we weren't aware. And joining me now to talk about this is Paul Watkin. He's with the Seacove Group, a premium wine and spirit company, spirit import company here in Vancouver. Hi, Paul. Hi, how are you? I'm okay. How are you doing with what's happened since Friday? Uh, We're hanging in there so far. Okay, you're hanging in there. And what do you think about the strike action? And what do you think about uh, the BCNDP's move to help ration? The strike action, we have no issue with, you know, cost of living and allowance or, or, or people wanting to get paid. That's not an issue for us. Um, the, the rationing, I understand why they're rationing. They're trying to spread out and, and, and keep sales going as long as they can before they run out of products. Uh, the issue for us is, is it exposes the bigger problem with, with the BCLDB and, you know, Obviously, the strike's not good for us. It's, it's shutting down the BCLW warehouses, uh, cuts off the entire supply chain. Um, so we have, for us, for importers, we have zero income coming in, revenue coming in at this point. Wow. So zero income coming in for importers. How does that uh, impact the, your, your sector in a wider way? In a wider way, it affects it in that... If, if, if orders can't be received, if orders can't be shipped out, you know, we don't get paid. Our customers, the general consumers, restaurants, private liquor stores, they can't get orders in. Um, they'll be running out and they can't effectively run their businesses. 
and those are our customers. And if we can't get product to our customers, it's it's a bit of an issue. And it's it's exposed the fact that it's the only supply chain. Yeah. And what does this mean for the the companies that you import from? Well, they still need to get paid, you know, for uh-huh. for for wine, spirits, beers, whatever it is, anything they ship. You know, we have to pay. We still have to pay shipping. We still have to pay the suppliers on a certain amount of time. You know, we still pay storage on all the products sitting there, sitting here uh, in British Columbia um, with, with zero revenue. So we, you know, they still need to get paid. It's not their fault. And how much does this season of business, like late August, matter to your import business? It matters a great deal. It's going to matter a bigger deal heading into September and the fall into the we'll call the holiday season you know obviously when people are buying for there's more events happening you you get into the holiday season and Thanksgiving and all those things and those are big big that's a big season for us a lot of restaurants will start to add a lot of product or change up their wine list so that's a big you know that that's 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 a lot to us that's that's very important. Paul, I wonder if you can elaborate on this because Seacove Group that you're a part of tweeted this. The BC NDP rejected direct delivery of specs which could bypass BCLDB warehouses and rejected license to license sales denying restaurants to buy from private retailers. And then it goes on to say the BCLDB is unreliable and the BCGU closed the warehouses. Import supply chain slammed shut. Break that down for our listeners. Yeah, absolutely. It, it's it's I, I sort of started to equate it now to the Rod, the recent Rogers outage, where we all learned how scary it was, how much one company can, controls. And it's that way with the BCLDB. Everything is funneled through the BCLDB warehouse. Um, it's really not that way in most other markets, most other provinces in this country and most other markets around the world where you can get direct delivery. For example, if you're a BC winery, you can phone the winery or their order desk or the company that represents them and place an order directly. You'll have that order in two to four days. Um, for wines that BC liquor stores order from the BCLV, they can get direct delivery and they'll have those wines on their shelves in two to four days. Pretty much every other product ordered in every other market in the world, it's the same thing. But certain products carried um, in the province that aren't carried by government liquor stores, but are available to restaurants and private liquor stores. Those products don't receive direct delivery from our warehouse, which would make more sense. They all are funneled through the BCLDB warehouse. And that process is a mess. It is convoluted. It can take anywhere from two to eight weeks to get the product. If you get the product at all, because the system will often lose or cancel orders. Um, so that's, it's, it's a biased system. You know, the BCLDB is a monopoly. It, BC liquor stores are the largest liquor retailer in the province. The BCLDB controls distribution, warehousing, and sets liquor policy uh, with the provincial government. So it's a very biased system. Uh, the government rejected license to license sales, get, denying the ability of restaurants to purchase from private liquor stores. Uh, the reason given was they couldn't accurately track PST, which really isn't a reason as much as an excuse because private liquor stores charge PST. It's recorded. Restaurants, if you purchase 
liquor in a restaurant, you know you get charged the 10% liquor tax. All they need to do is when the restaurant buys from the private liquor store, it's not a customer number like you would at a grocery store yeah. or anywhere else. And then that's easily tracked. Now, obviously, the restaurant records it as well because they need it for their taxes to submit their PST. And in terms of direct delivery, when asked, the government has never given a reason. They've just said it's not going to happen. Interesting. That's really leads, interesting. Yeah, it leads to speculation. And of course, one can't confirm this, but it leads to speculation. Officially or unofficially, there's some agreement with the CLDB and or the BCGU and or the provincial government mm-hmm. that, that prevents this. Hmm. Um, if that's not the case, there's even less of a reason not to do it. Because what, what, what direct delivery will do is it frees up the BCLW warehouse, which right now cannot handle uh-huh. um, the orders that's coming in. It frees up BC liquor stores um, who don't have to deal with placing a lot of these orders. The mm. um, warehouse can better focus on servicing their own stores. And for liquor importers, we can get wine out to our customers with a direct delivery. And restaurants and private liquor stores can get their orders timely and consistently. Paul, this has been very illuminating. Thank you so much for coming on this morning and explaining that all to us. Uh, Thank you for having me on. Well, the BC NDP MLA, Adrian Dix, has said that electing BC NDP candidate Pauline Greaves in South Surrey, Surrey South, will help ensure that a new hospital slated for Cloverdale is completed. Our guest is BC Liberal leader Kevin Falcon, and he opposes the $1.7 billion hospital build. Kevin joins us now. Hi, Kevin. Hi, how are you? Good. You're laughing. What did you think about that intro? Oh, well, it was pretty good, except I, I don't oppose it. I just, uh, I just. You've got some oh, criticism. Yeah, I've got lots of, lots of criticism. <laughs> Look, where yeah. do you want to start? <laughs> well, let's start with the fact that they've been announcing and re-announcing this so-called hospital. It's not a hospital. Uh, it's a glorified urgent care center. Um, and they've, they've announced and re-announced it seven times now. Okay. Nothing has been started on this thing. And it just gets a bit tiring because they, they keep trotting this thing out every time they want to sound like they're doing something about healthcare. But the reality is, here, here's the concern I have. Um, it's 168 beds. It will have no intensive care unit, no maternity ward in the fastest growing community uh, in the lower mainland, in the province, in fact. Um, and it's located in a really poor location. Uh, it's my old riding. So, um, you know, I, I like that it's going to be in my old riding, but my goodness, there's very little transit connections there. And what I have said from the beginning is building a hospital is the easy part. Staffing it is the hard part. And rather than have it at a location that's hard to reach, especially for the staff, it should be on the Fraser Highway where they're uh, planning to build a rapid transit SkyTrain all the way out through to Langley. That would make it far easier for doctors, nurses, care aides, all the janitorial staff staff, uh, et cetera, that you're going to need in a, in a hospital or an urgent care center. So you mentioned there the location issue, also the labor issue too. So what do you think is going on for the NDP here? Like what's their strategy? Well, I, I think their strategy is the same strategy they constantly use. And I think the public, especially in Syria, is waking up to where they, they consistently make these promises. They promised that SFU would have a medical program to train doctors, that nothing's ever come of that. 
Uh, you know, they've, they've so about that SFU hospital out in Surrey, Horgan made that promise uh, a couple of years ago now, promised in, in 2020. And we had uh, Health Minister Adrian Dix on the on the Mike Smith show last week uh, when I was filling in. And he said it is coming um, and it's going to be slow process to come to fruition. Uh, but what what is your criticism with that one? You don't want that one either? No, I, I, I think it's a great idea. It's just that what I've discovered with these folks is that they, they're really good at making promises and issuing press releases. They just don't know how to get big things done. Look, I oversaw the $500 million expansion of the Surrey Memorial Hospital. We built the Jibby Patterson Outpatient Centre right behind it. I built the you know Portman Bridge, the South Fraser Perimeter Road, widened 176 and number 10. Um, and all that happened within the 10 years that I was in government. Now, they, they're in their second term now. And I look around Surrey and I don't see anything happening and promising and re-promising seven times a, a, a second hospital, which is not a hospital. I think we just have to be clear about that. It is a glorified urgent care center. It is not a hospital, no maternity ward, no intensive care unit. Um, I, I just think that that gets tiresome for people. And uh, especially when you're going to build it in an area that's going to be extremely hard for people to access. Okay, so they are planning to have around 160 beds there. Uh, you say no ICU and no maternity ward. That's true. Uh, but people, talk to people who work at Surrey Memorial Hospital, and they'll tell you uh, we need something else. Oh, for sure. Like, there's just no question. Look, my daughter was uh, born at Surrey Memorial, um, and it's a very important hospital. We've got the Peace Arch Hospital where my other daughter was born uh, in South Surrey. They tried to close down the maternity ward there, by the way. Adrian Dix did. And it was only because of the strong pushback from RMLA, Trevor Halford and others that they backed off uh, trying to shut down that maternity ward. So, look, I, I just think that what we need to do is recognize that we have a huge crisis in healthcare today. The worst I have ever seen. One in five British Columbians cannot access a family physician. We've got family physicians being practiced virtually on a daily basis. And we have put forward some real ideas to the government on how they can deal with this. They're ideas that are informed by our discussions or many, many discussions with doctors, frontline doctors, and they've done nothing. And instead they just keep churning out these, these phony promises, quite frankly, about a hospital that they've been promising for six years, six years. And I, I just think it's time for you know, some real action that's going to actually help people today, and and not make these uh, promises they've been making for years. So, so Kevin, that one point seven billion dollar price tag on that hospital bill, what would you do with that in healthcare? Well, well, look, if if they get started on it, we'll we'll be stuck with the location, and we'll get on and continue. I won't do what they did with the Massey Bridge that the BC Liberals had started and spent a hundred million dollars on, that they cancelled. Uh, even though construction had already started. That, I'm, I would never do anything that irresponsible. And by the way, just as an aside for all our Sur- Surrey listeners out there, that bridge would have been opening in September. This, In other words, next month. Uh, and instead, we're going to have to wait another decade and billions of dollars more so they can move forward with this crazy idea of an eight-lane tunnel. Now that I will cancel if I can get in there in time and cut them off before they get any construction started. But in this case, look, if they start construction, we'll be stuck with it. But I'm not concerned about that because they won't. Uh, because there's no chance they will. They, they've they got exactly $2 million in this year's budget for that hospital. Okay, $2 million uh, won't even get you the, um, the, the the drawings that you need to do for a hospital like this. So there's no chance that they will get um, the construction started on this project pr- prior to the next election. 
And because of that, that will give us an opportunity to actually uh, think about where is the best location for this hospital. It's interesting that Fraser Health is not pushing this hospital. I think that, and what I'm told by senior people there, is they think this is a dumb idea too, uh, but that the NDP just keep promising and re-promising it. And so they're not that concerned about it actually happening. Okay, thank you for weighing in, as we always expect you to when we give you a <laughs> ring, even this early on a Sunday morning. Thanks so <laughs> no much. Problem. Thanks so much for having me, Raji. Thanks for listening to the Weekend Mornings with Raji Sohal podcast. Be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And you can listen to the show live on 980 CKNW from 6 to 9 a.m. every Sunday. Have a great week.